Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. episode 367 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome. In this episode, I chat to Tom Ivor Hudson of Tinimations about their rhythm action arcade adventure, Clang 2. This is a clearly a follow-on to Clang, which also was uh, an action adventure, but this one's slightly different. Of course it is. It's a build-on or follow-on. Direct sequel, of course, to that in that you don't have actually direct control of the character's movements. You simply have to react to the symbols and images and explosions that occur, and you have to do it in a certain way, in a certain time, in a certain sequence, to get through. If you don't, then you fail, and you die, and it's starting over again. Really, really, really like this game. Really like this game. I played it at PAX East back in 2020, and hopefully there's going to be a PAX East 2022. I think there is going to be. I mean, it's a PAX Unplugged at the time of, uh, you know, creating this um, presentation, introduction, I should say. So, yeah, let's hope. Anyway, Tom was a really great guest. Had lots of fun chatting to him about how he integrated the concept of movement of a character with sound and beats and melodies. Really, really interesting stuff. Quite a challenge for him. And he admits that, to his credit. And, um, yeah, let's just talk to, you know, Tom then, shall we? Well, listen to me talk to Tom from a few months ago. So let's, let's, let's do that. Chris, please, take it away. Tom. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm an indie game developer. From Norway, and I just released my rhythm action game Clang 2 that I've been working on for 
between four to five years now. I honestly lost track at some point. As is the way with most creative endeavours, you get kind of lost and time starts flying away. But eventually, it's going to have to end unless you're making Star Citizen or something. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> it comes to a point where, um, where um, like meaningful improvements would only really come from starting from scratch again. And at that point, I, th I think it's time to you to release. That's a really, really wonderful way of putting. I never thought of it that way. You know, if there's any tweaks or I hate that phrase changes. There you go, changes that need to be made. Then you may as well just start again. Uh, if it's getting like that. Um, so yeah, it's a really wonderful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass that one on. Bit of nugget of wisdom there. Thank you, Tom. My pleasure. Second question then. How did you make your start making video games? Um, it was um, it's it's, it's kind of not that complicated. It's it, like when people ask me that, I just tend to actually just quote that Shia LaBeouf meme that just says "just do it." Well, he was where right, he just, wasn't he? Yeah, just bloody yeah, it. where he where he just does the whole squat thing and like just do it because it is kind of that simple. It's just. <laughs> You, um, especially with the tools available these days, you, of course, I had a strong will to make games built up from early childhood, like, of course, which designer doesn't. And I think it was um, when I was uh, just after, or no, wait, it was just before graduating high school, uh, where I started meeting people who were then studying game design. Um, in schools uh, from uh, like the town over and stuff, and just kind of got acquainted with that, and I, then I kind of got to join some form of like game development community before I was really becoming a developer myself. So, so I kind of had seniors uh, or not nah, seniors is too generous, but like bachelor students to um, uh, to kind of learn from and. Um, learn some of the basics and the fundamentals before I then joined a game jam uh, where I then teamed up with one of those student friends and we then made a a very stylish um, gravity-based platformer in like two days that kind of opened my eyes to how possible it actually is to make games if you just set your mind to it. And at that point I had this idea for this uh, kind of rhythm action game brewing for years, as it is as a form of fantasy in my head, which uh, I then came to the conclusion to that I want to really try and make that. And you did with Clang 1, or Clang. Yeah, certainly tried at least. <laughs> Wonderful game, really good. And uh, Clang 2 definitely builds from it in many regards, and this goes off in different tangents. Um, but we'll talk about that in the second half of the show. So, and the tools you're using, is it Unity typically? Uh, no, both, both of these two games have been made with uh, Construct 2, which is, okay. um, it's kind of like a, um, in, the, in the same tier as Game Maker, as in that it's designed to be very approachable at the cost of being somewhat limited. Right. Well, it looks magnificent, and, uh, so I wouldn't have known. So, yeah, thank you. I um, 
most people definitely think it's been made with Unity uh, when they ask on on first glance, which I suppose is a is a compliment. Yeah, yeah. This shows what um, tools, you know, these high level, I should say, high level tools available that uh, you don't have to delve too hard into the code these days because what's available now is is quite. It's all about constructing the assets now and pouring that in and getting and uh, the underlying machinery is uh, is uh, looked after in many regards not entirely but for the most part yeah it purely comes down to what kind of game you want to make or like and what aspects of the design you want to emphasize on of course like if it's going to be very systemically and graphically complex um then you'd likely want some more form of power user engine, like maybe like in Unity or Unreal, or maybe in something custom. Uh, but at least for me, when I was starting out, I had since my my background was with three uh, D art and and graphical design and stuff, where where we've always been constrained by the limitations of the software we use. Like for instance, in Photoshop, you're kind of limited by the functionality there, and in After Effects, you can't unless you're like one of those crazy people that makes custom plugins you are completely limited by what the software can provide you. And I kind of embraced that same mindset when I was going to make the first Clang with, with Construct, since it has a, it had a, I guess, a framework with a lot of pre-made, um, essentially like a pre-made code base that you could uh, design a game around. And I felt like, okay, this, this is already giving me the restrictions I need to kind of narrow down the vision because when when this starts the limit then especially like just that new guy that wants to do everything and hasn't really learned the ropes yet uh you're very easily just going to end up uh, over scoping the hell out of the game and just likely not even end up shipping at all <laughs> yeah yeah never get never never achieving that zenith of that's it's, it's fine it's good enough it's great good to go constantly churning away but uh yeah so my next question it's a bit of a nebulous one but um i think you've almost answered it earlier on but uh, let's let's try anyway as a creator of things of which you are tom what are your biggest influences uh that one is kind of Kind of tough. Like, mm. of, of course, if I, I guess, were to summarize it, summarize it in like a very simple sentence, it would likely just be all the media I have consumed in my foundational years. Yeah. Since like, um, like almost everything I make, I, when I think hard enough about it, I can, and when I scrutinize it myself, I can like say, oh, I, I just totally ripped it from that thing or that thing, and or this is a mis, a, a match of these two elements but like i i try not to at least hyper focus on one inspirational source because i i guess that might just be the whole norwegian in me but we tend to not like to copy things we uh we tend to to mostly like just try to be as original as possible on everything we do as a form of like um uh, i guess what's the Mm, yeah, I don't really know the English term for it, but uh, independence, maybe independent thought. Um, that's I, 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 pioneering spirit, maybe something like that. 
I, I guess it's more uh, we, we don't like to be called copycats. I, uh-huh, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. That that's um. Innovators, yeah. that kind of thing. Maybe I, I suppose really enjoying inventing the wheel or reinventing the wheel every time, just making yeah. life life hard for us. That's fair. Okay. So the, the sheer act of creation of based on creating something new is something that drives you not only you personally, but it sounds like as as Norwegians, it's a thing. Uh, it's a. It's uh, at least I feel that is the thing that I would describe the Norwegian game development scene as, uh, since there are many rather unique concepts that come out out of the scene. But as a result, when many of them are maybe skewing too much in, into doing a new thing, they struggle to find an audience often. Yes, and also, and, uh, is it is like, maybe new, but is it, you know, is it going to work? <laughs> is it yeah, they, there, there's that. But also, when you're um, when you have limited um, marketing resources as well, you're, you're kind of surprisingly dependent on there already being an audience looking for a specific thing. Right, right. Like since um, I, I feel with many successful indie games, there's kind of a parallel where uh, it was kind of clear that oh, they're um, they they were addressing a starved market for a certain thing, uh, and with an example game I can think of is probably Undertale, uh, where Nintendo certainly hadn't filled the void with the whole Earthbound and Mother thing for like decades. So when then someone made a really good game that filled that hole, the the road to finding an audience is a lot shorter, I'd imagine. Right. So taking a a very old concept and then bringing it up to date with modern design sensibilities. This is a very common tale. Um, there's nothing wrong with that because you're still bringing something new. And Undertale is an exceptional game. Yeah, of course. Though there are, there are still kind of overlaps and things people can notice. But, oh, it's this is kind of like that thing I've been wanting for a while. So... Therefore, I'll be more interested in this thing. And of course, there are other examples as well. But at least I feel that is a uh, an observation. And I guess that's also part of the reason why I narrowed down the focus for Clang 2 a bit more and turned it into more of a pure rhythm game with some more um, familiar features. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can definitely see it sort of eases the... Uh... Uh, audience make it a little bit more approachable rather than something completely abstract or unusual, unfamiliar, I should say. Uh, yeah, so then uh, people struggle a bit more like deciding on do they even want this thing because they may not even... Yeah, understand what they're seeing. I mean, there are exceptions to that rule because there's a Recently, we had a guest about a game called Before Your Eyes. Are you familiar with this game? No, I don't think so. Uh, it's a game that's uh, controlled by you blinking. Oh, oh, wait, wait. Yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, it only lasts an hour or so, give or take. It's a bit, you know, quite emotional. I won't say any more than that. And mm. 
that that's a yeah, game uh, that uh, pushes the boundaries. Yeah, and uh, and it also has a very definable hook, which is of course very very useful as well. Yes, yes. When you say that, like it's get, I've always done it to you. Like, oh yeah, I know that one because you knew. Like yeah, that one. So. Yeah, like uh, I I knew the hook of the game more than the name. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. So, next question, and this one's also a bit of a toughie, um, and you can give me multiple answers. What developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? That I admire the most. Mm. Mm. That one might actually be easier for me. Uh, oh, I actually. Yeah, Kojima. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Kojima. He's uh, he's the sensei, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, reason why? I, I guess he's just been very consistently trying to push the boundaries of the medium, while also just bringing in a, an exceptional level of ambition to it, and almost always like delivering on an exceptionally high note. Like, uh, arguably, even with uh, Metal Gear Solid Five, that was kind of unfinished in a sense, but it was still, on, a f- on, on, on the most important parts, it was still a great game. And, uh, yeah, and his whole, the design sensibilities and the whole creative vision of his team, all that just really inspired me all the way from my upbringing. So, yeah, he's definitely the number one. In okay. in the in the indie scene, I would probably choose someone a bit more local. Um, are you familiar with the game Owlboy? Owlboy. I'm yes, embarrassed yeah. to admit I can't remember it. I probably am, but I don't know. I haven't played it all. No. Mm, but yeah, it um it made waves. Um, I I guess it was around the same time Clank One launched. But anyway, they were. It's a, a duo of two people from Norway as well, uh, and this was like before we even really had a game dev scene at all, apart from Funcom. Right. Wow, and, that is some time ago. Yeah, and they just uh, said like, just, just screw it. We're just gonna make our dreams come true. And they kind of, I'm not sure if it even was intentional on their part. But they kind of dragged along and create, helped create an entire indie scene in Norway. <laughs> and and I was part of one of those developers that got like really inspired and, and dared to take the jump mostly because they did it first. Right. So, and, and of course when the game came out, it was also really, really good and made a lot of waves internationally. So yeah, they've also been a huge inspiration to me. Hmm. Wonderful answers. I mean, going back to Kojima a bit, his first game was Arctic Adventure on the MSX and he still sees genius in that. Uh, mm, as um, as though did did that ever finish though? I wasn't it wasn't actually Metal Gear the first one that he actually yeah shipped. he was involved with the creation of Arctic Adventure which was finished and released. Um, but yeah, but uh, Metal Gear was the first one that came out on the MSX. You're right. Which you, yeah so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was also uh, kind of. Um, yeah, at least I considered Metal Gear on the MSX as the first real one. Yes, of course. But everyone has their start somewhere, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. So. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, or go on. 
Oh, it's just sad to say. Unless you've got any other developers you want to point out and say, yes, you should carry on doing what you're doing. Um, we can go on to the last question. But do you have any others? Want to sort of? Oh well, of course there are plenty. I res respect mm. greatly, but um, I, I guess uh, naming one household name and one indie that's fantastic indie yeah. developer uh, might be a, a good and clean way to go about. It is. Yeah. It is. So next and last question of the first half, and here it is. And this is a. Podcast about video games, so therefore we're kind of required to ask this question. So it is. Please, Tom, tell us what are you playing right now? Oh, uh, Metroid Dread. Oh. Oh yes. oh yes. So have you finished it? Silly question. Yeah, that was that was the easiest sit through of a game I've had in years. Like, uh, it's it's been so long since I kind of literally loved everything <laughs> about a game. Wow, high praise indeed. Yeah, so, Dread was Dread uh, masterpiece. Hmm, I do have it. Haven't actually started it yet because I've been busy doing other things. I know, unforgivable. I'm actually going on a big trip tomorrow uh, to the north of the country, so I think I'll be popping it in my switch as I as I go travelling. So it's going to be a bit of a long train journey for me. Yeah, then you're you'll be in for a treat, especially like if you are a fan of Metroid. Then yeah. It's, uh... yeah. Um, I have NES or NES, depending on what part of the world, and I have the mm -hmm. original cart for Metroid. The original, I can see it from where I'm sitting. Yeah, there it is. It's up there <laughs> on my bookshelf. Um, and uh, I've actually plugged it into my NES and had a go. It's, it still holds up very well to this day. It's it's um it's very much an eight bit game of its time, but nevertheless, it's very advanced. And, uh, yeah, my uh, my first meeting with the uh, the series was super. I uh, never got around to the the true original. And there's many many Metroid games. It's one of those series that's difficult to track, which is what, and you don't know what number it is because Super Metroid was technically Metroid three. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm sure that Metroid five uh, on the reveal trailer turned a lot of heads. <laughs> yeah, it's like, hang on, is it? I guess because there's GBA versions, there's Game Game Boy mm. Color versions, and also it's all very. I mean, I've got them all, but it's difficult to keep track. It's one. It's like Zelda. No, worse still, almost as bad as Final Fantasy. No, it's just too many of those. Too many. I mean, is it Final Fantasy Tactics? Is that part of the thing? Final Fantasy Crystals? I don't go. It's all very confusing. But um, I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, playing that um, on the train journey, so uh, I'll have to finally pry out Animal Crossing for my Switch. <laughs> but uh, there it is. But no, so it, how did you find the controls though? Because I understand there's a lot of button combinations you have to do. I, I found it surprisingly intuitive, and and of course it also gradually introduces the concept. So I, I didn't really have an issue with that. Um, of, I guess, of course, there were, uh, like, once you make it to the most intense boss battles, and if you are the type that gets stressed out easily, I guess it can become an issue. But uh, it, it wasn't the problem for me, no. No. Um, and quite frankly, my my Switch is a marvellous machine, because I did a thing about a year ago, which I... If you own a Switch, you clearly you do. I highly recommend it. Put a huge, huge SD card in there. You know, just like mm -hmm. massive one, like 
if you can afford it, half a terabyte. If not, two, five, six gigabytes. Then you just pour all these games into it. (laughs) (laughs) And they have this massive library of exceptional games. Exceptional games on your machine. Now, a lot of, do have a lot of, like my Metroid is actually a cart, actually, you know, because some, some games I actually buy physically. Like games like that, like kind of iconic games, I sort of buy them physically. But in many cases, I don't. And recently, I bought like the XCOM collection for four pounds, which is pittance. And it was like, okay, because yeah. they were selling it off. That's really, I'd be really good to play that on the Switch. Like, yeah, of course it will. And uh, so I've got this vast, vast collection of games. So, yes, yeah, my advice to everyone it's a little bit pricey, but. If you just sort of bite the bullet and realise that it just that means you just have this massive li- mobile library of high quality games. There you go. My tip. Yeah, like um, if I if I make it to a time where I um, yeah, where I have more time and a bit more disposable income, that would uh, definitely be pretty sweet. Yeah, it's a very simple and easy thing to do, but uh, extremely liberating because you just stop thinking about it. You stop thinking about how much space you've got left because it's always the answer to that question is loads. And <laughs> 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 um, I haven't got the OLED, um, um, the OLED, as they say, um, switch uh, for one principal reason. It's because as much as I loved the new screen, I was attracted by that. Unfortunately, the, the switch OLED is slightly bigger than the original one. And I have a device on my OLED, on my, sorry, my Switch, which allows me to rotate the screen 90 degrees and yet use mm. the dual cons. It's called a flip grip. And it allows me to play guy, and arcade games like, you know, 1942 and stuff like that, these old. Oh, yeah. And uh, why. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's all I know what you're saying. Oh, yeah. It's a little bit of plastic. I don't know how it works. It's magical. And. Uh, it's fantastic, and but it does mean that I can't actually, you know, use the OLED one because it wouldn't fit in it. And I actually reached out to the creator of the flip grip and I said, "Are you going to make a new one for the OLED?" And he very honestly and told me, you know, lovely to him to get back to me. He said, "No," <laughs> because he his argument was the audience is far too small, you know. So it's like it's too too and too much of a niche audience that plays Twitch games in portrait mode, of which I am one. <laughs> so. Yeah, and uh, at least for for me, I I I'm kind of happy with the regular the regular screen. So I yeah, just uh, just buying a new device just for that. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, didn't sound like I, I I guess that whole deal is more appealing for people who never had a Switch to begin with. Correct. Absolutely correct. That's how it is. So, yeah. Let's. And, yeah. Yeah, I suppose I was also about to say, since I also heard some rumors that the, the dock actually supports a higher bandwidth so that um, it it could potentially in the future support 4K or something like that. The, uh, the, the dock for, for the OLED. Yeah. Well, so, uh, don't quote me on that. It's just a rumor I heard. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah. God knows what. I mean, I you know. I don't think the machine's capable of pushing that out, quite frankly. But anyway, what do I know? I'm not that much of a technology expert. Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, so, 
let's move on to the second half, Tom, where we delve deep into Clang 2. talk about playing too until we know what it is. Now I could have a go at describing it. In fact, I've had many guests have said, go on Chris, have a go. <laughs> but I would ask, in your own words, please tell us, what is Clang 2? Well, Clang 2 is a psychedelic rhythm action game blindly pursuing full immersion with uh, dance music through lightning fast combat. And the whole kind of unique shtick to it is that um, it, it is kind of it has the aesthetic of a two D platformer, but it is a in fact a rhythm game, and the character's position position on screen kind of dictates the game flow, while also being semi procedural. So you kind of get the best of both worlds, where uh, you get the familiarity of the beat and the rhythm. That's that's kind of where the beat map is created by hand. But the actual flow on screen is purely dynamic and has procedural elements so that even when you play the same song, you can still recognize the beat and the objective, but you will kind of, you can't rely too much on your muscle memory since the, the flow will be different every time. So that, that you can still jam out to the same song and still feel that sense of um, flexibility and challenge, even when you've technically already mastered it. Yeah, this game's not Beat Saber, everyone, because that's the one weakness of Beat Saber. All, you know, it's very few weaknesses of Beat Saber, if I may say, but that's one of them, is that once you know that pattern, the song does meld with it, so that helps with the muscle memory of the pattern, but ultimately, once you got it, you've got it. Yeah, that's kind of a, uh, a staple of the genre uh, as a whole. But to have procedural generation in Clang is, or any, or Clang 2, or in, in, in a way that, in a rhythm action game, that's, that's brave. Um, 
I'm not being patronising to you, Tom. Please don't think that. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure that was quite a struggle. And we're going to now talk a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Um, because the... So you'll play little like, characters. Beautifully animated, by the way. It's one Thank thing you. That struck me. People don't realise that if you need to look at the little avatar that you're representing, whoever that may be, and the, they've got, you know, it's just really well done. It's sort of just—it was, was a really good touch. It looked like you've spent a lot of effort on them, and I know why, but we'll talk about it later. But I want to ask you about this is the first design question. Here we go. So in Clang Two. There's a requirement for the player to interact with symbols or shapes mm-hmm. that appear on the screen um, using specific timings and actions. So some of them you simply just have to jab at, you, you touch. Mm-hmm. Another you have to direct, you have to align an arrow, the green ones. This is quite early on. This is um, like, you know, um, I don't want to get into too much content in the game because, you know, I don't want to spoil anything, but this is typically what happens. you beginning and it expires out and does all the... <laughs> we have the green arrow, which allows you to jump in that direction. And then, of course, mm-hmm. there's the one you have to hold um, and uh, where you click and hold uh, to, 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 for, against the melody. Mm. Um, can you talk us through their design, please? And... You know their their concept and why we went through this interaction. Why go with these? Yeah, the uh, I guess the whole goal from the beginning was a way to to capture the the sense of a character fighting through a an intuitive uh, rhythm combat system. And like thinking back to like when I played games like Guitar Hero and certain other rhythm games, like I personally actually kind of fell off them once they started introducing enough inputs to the point where you actually had to think where to move your hand or what am I supposed to push now? Oh, uh, because I, I guess I was always kind of casual in that sense that I just preferred it really simple, but in return, very intense. Because uh, when all the inputs are super basic, like okay, it's like you tap the circle, you swipe this arrow and you hold down on this one thing, then it's, that part becomes kind of brainless, but in return, I can then just like make it really freaking fast. And um, I guess what also kind of inspired those mechanics as well was that I, um, for, for the tap, I kind of wanted that to represent like a light attack in a typical character action game, since you have like that one move that you just can very spontaneously press, like the that's usually the square button in, uh, where he just does it fast sword slash and where the hold was then supposed to represent more of a heavy attack that would also kind of capture more of the majestic parts of the song that would be difficult to to, to place in a a binary input like um since there is definitely a thing in a lot of edm songs where you have the you have the drum and then like you have some kind of like majestic like, kind of sound uh once you're closing in on the drop uh that would be kind of diff- difficult to capture in in a meaningful way mechanically. So I'd rather just like let it be like the um, the pause for the player, where they can just kind of catch the breath a little while being blessed with um, fancy lighting lighting effects on all, all over the screen. 
And then I guess the most important uh, aspect is the arrow that moves the character because that is kind of the whole catalyst for the whole procedural thing. Because again, if the if the player misses and he just remains on the same place, then the flow of the track is complete will be completely different than if he succeeds and then jumps, let's say, to the other side of the screen. Because uh, it, it's also important that everything makes sense comp composition wise. Because uh, you you try to avoid uh, since if let's say if it was a hard coded pattern and the character was standing in the wrong place, it would just like look really awkward. <laughs> Yeah, which was also kind of the catalyst as to um, why I just went with the procedural pattern thing to begin with was to, that, that I wanted the action to look really fluent, no matter how the player was performing and where they were on screen. Hmm. I, I we haven't explained, maybe have, but the player can't have direct control of the movement in a traditional sense of the little avatar person that you're running around as. Um, you only, like you say, if you success, when the green blob appears, and that for me is a big trigger warning, like, I have to get this. If it, if anything, this one I need to really get. And it does require you to aim your reticule and aim the arrow in a more or less uh, alignment, not 100%, because that's, you know, just unfair. But you've got to get really close to actually get onto that. Uh, in fact, if the more aligned you are, the more perfect you are, and you hit it just at the right moment. Then you actually it's, across um, the, the screen. Yeah, it is pretty forgiving. Actually, the only factors are actually that it, you need to accelerate the mouse while holding down in that direction, but you can do it anywhere on screen. Yeah, and also if you prefer a mouse and keyboard setup, you can also use the um, your um, arrow keys of choice. So you can use uh, WASD or IJKL or the arrow keys as well. If you want a more binary input for the uh, the swipe arrows, nice. Yeah, and also if you're uh, if you're playing with a gamepad, that's where it really becomes important because your the the pivot you aim from is the character itself. So if he's moving, then that affects your aim. Yeah, which is I always played the game with the joypad. I've always have you know it's just. Most PC games I play, apart from RTSs and FPS games, gamepad. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> There's loads of them. I've got a really nice one. It's great. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. And, it, and that's how I played Clang 2. Higher record. It's a very... And also headphones. Definitely headphones. Oh, Def boy. Definitely headphones. Definitely headphones. I love the big... Quite, it lingers for a little bit. I like it. The fact that it goes, really, I'm not going in a way. Uh, it's up to you if you want to use your 5.1 surround sound that's fine but honestly you, you want to use your headphones for this okay it gets, wanna... you gets you more into character if you know what I'm saying it does it does bit of cosplaying there for you there you go <laughs> next question and this one's a little bit technical as well because this is the nature of these questions but when playing Clank 2, there is a tendency, i found, to become lost with the music and the symbols. And your focus, your attention is drawn to the inner ellipse of the play area. Just focusing on your movements and the symbols, or what have you, we'll call them, that appear around you. Mm -hmm. But what I find is that 
I have no idea where I am on the track. <laughs> it's like, is it half done? Is it? No idea. And you do have some UI aspects on the top of the screen that indicate, you know, how much combinations you've done, and what points you're scoring, what percentages of success you're doing for this particular track. Could you talk us through the design of the UI, knowing that the player is very much focused on this inner ellipse of the screen, while given the chance to glance off every now and again to see how else things are going? Yeah, like, of course, um, the kind of the design wisdom a lot of games refer to is kind of like how Zelda does it, like usually having all the UI on the top left or in a corner. And I found it to be kind of unideal for a game like Clang, where you're actually, I, I could almost say that the ideal way to play the game is with the, the HUD off, even, because it lets you focus even more on just the objectives you're supposed to hit. And at least I found that the um, the center was the ideal place, since uh, I guess it's the... Um, you're the the least likely to self sabotage your own performance by looking at the UI like okay how well am I doing oh shit I I missed the beat and then you're just getting thrown off yeah um yeah and, and that's also kind of why it's a it's kind of a it's not just a symmetrical but it, it, there's like two bars to to the timing for instance like uh, how much time is there left on the uh, on the track is kind of like one on the left and one on the right that are like going inward. Yeah. So that like if you're, um, let's say you're um, you're hitting beats on the right side of the screen and you're just like gently looking at the the UI to like see how far left is it, then you'll find your answer just as soon on the right side as on the left side. It's really and also yeah. go on. Yeah, and also in uh, in the since what I noticed with a lot of player feedback is that they also kind of wanted some form of indicator to whether or not they had they were still on the track of a perfect run. And I guess the cleanest way I dealt with that was to like have this kind of white bars next to the percentage or the score that will only stay there if you're actually performing perfectly, so that players will immediately be able to know that, okay, they felt slightly off perfection, so if you're that kind of guy, you can just, like, immediately retry it. Yeah, there is a temptation for that. I mean, the whole perfect run thing, that's fine. Although sometimes I feel I'm remixing the uh, the, the track when I don't quite pull it off. <laughs> um, speaking of failures, and I want to talk about this because Clang 2 is quite... Well, it gets quite aggressive. No, not aggressive, but assertive. That's a better word. When you do fail, there's lots of things that happen when things don't quite go right. But you don't, you miss something. Um, mm. And the screen dims a bit, I think. There's a discordant note. Um And uh, the symbol that you fail to hit or appropriately or sort of like fizzles into basically saying you failed on multiple fronts. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk yeah, us through how that came to be in Clang 2? Why did you go so hard saying 
you really don't want this to happen. I think I know why, but I want to you talk talk me through it. I I guess it comes down to I just really like games that that spanks me. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, like again, some of my favorite moments in a lot of action games are like usually that type, the type of moment where like either a boss or an antagonist just like just really pummels you, like gets you piped up that okay, you're actually going to have to defeat this guy at some point. And I guess that kind of rubbed off on me in the sense that I just I. I just wanted a very intense sensation to almost every part of the game design, including failure. Including failure, uh, yeah. Yeah, so like, for instance, uh, I guess the most memorable moment from, like, Resident Evil 4 that just never left my mind was, like, when that uh, chainsaw guy just, like, so ice cold, just, like, slices your head off in, like, the most brutal fashion ever, and it's just like, oh, that's... the it's such an intense moment. Yeah. That's and, coming out in and, VR as well soon, so God help us. <laughs> yeah, I was talking to an office mate about that yesterday, actually. But yeah, um, back to the uh, intense thing. is uh, of, Part of it is, uh, of course, also feedback. Because especially uh, when things are going fast and, uh, and you're kind of overwhelmed, then I found surprising often that people didn't even detect that they were taking damage. They didn't legit didn't actually notice. So when they then just reached the fail state, then they were like, "Oh, what, what happened? Didn't I do well?" So I I felt I kind of had to double down on the um, on the feedback to make people like have there been no uh, confusion whether or not you were doing well or not. Yeah, it's such a discordant moment. It's just like, well, one minute I was like flying through this, I'm enjoying the tune, all of a sudden, yeah, what's that? What was that? What was that? What were you doing? Come on, pick this up. You know, it's <laughs> just, it's, it's great. It's like, really feels like you failed to read the tune, to recognize the beat. What was that melody? Th- what was, what are you doing? Wait, come on, are you here to have you to get this done, or are you just gonna like, you know, make a mockery of everything? Mm. I, I should, of course, also mention that you can customize it in options. That if you find the at least the auditory feedback too much, then you can just turn that off. And you yes. can also um, turn on what I call the dark assist. That kind of by design will dim the background harder based on your choice. So you can so during intense sequences, you if you choose, you can just have it literally just be black. So that you only see the character and the the icons you're supposed to hit. Wow! Yeah, I didn't really mess around with that because, um, well, it's almost as if you are reading my fourth question because I like the visuals in Clang Two, the whole neon sort of like with the dark background, sort of almost single color, I think, but it's not. It looks like it's gradient sometimes. It's it's really like, just pops out of the screen, especially with these. The, the latest monitors that we have these days, they are quite exceptional now. You know, we take it for granted now, but if you, t- you know, five years ago, they're, they're, they're nothing compared to what we have now. And uh, honestly, Clang 2 really pops from the screen, especially if you've got HDR stuff kicking off. It's great. Amazing stuff. And I just want to ask, um, adopting this style, which you have with Clang 2, Definitely has a massive impact. I would have thought. I say I'm asserting, 
I believe it will have an impact on how the game is communicated to the player, what's uh, the state of what's going on. Do you think that that style is fed into that, or is it the other way around? Was it was it adopted in order to facilitate communication? Talk us through that. Yes, that was actually a big, big thing. Uh, it was literally the artist game design, uh, as in terms of communication, since. Uh, uh, it, it's that balance between having a spectacle, but also having it be very readable and not have it get in the way. Because uh, uh, again, part of the when I also did the research and I just noticed that a lot of the enthusiast rhythm players literally just play on a black screen um, because they want zero um, things interfering with the precision of hitting the beat. And I, I could definitely see that becoming a an issue if I weren't being mindful, and that's why I kind of went with this um, uh, almost monochro monochromatic aesthetic for a lot of the battle arenas. Because again, when you're fighting, then they are not the center point. Then it's, it is the icons you're actually trying to hit, and that's also why I had to be very mindful to not use colors and the types of contrasts that would come across as noisy in the environment I'd rather have it feel somewhat soft and, and that was also part of the reason why i introduced more purple in um, into the color palette of clang 2 in comparison to clang 1 which was uh very blue and orange or, or like tron blue and and an orange added on top so with with more of the nuance i could then like soften out the contrast in the environment and then really have the icons pop uh, and just really dictate the players' attention to the stuff they need to see uh, to comfortably play. That was a huge thing. And um, like one of the challenges was uh, to, to figure out the balance of how much red I could use in the backgrounds, which turned out to be very little. <laughs> just the, the slightest uh, hint of intense red and I could just tell people felt distracted by it. It's amazing, isn't it? Because you could have gone away of like, well, let's make like like a pixel art game with a forest or something, and you're you're hitting um, glyphs on on a, on a strange sort of uh, like um, shrine. You could have done that. Problem with that is, you can't tell what's going on, <laughs> right? Is there too much going on? It's like you could have had birds flying by and a great sort of yeah, yeah. and um and that was also a thing with uh, a lesson from clang one since there i did have a lot of stuff going on in the background and it i guess um this is what i could kind of tell from playtesting is that people didn't really notice because they were too busy just not losing the game and it also introduced a lot of performance issues and technical hurdles and it was just uh, a lot of work that turned out to be kind of redundant and also when I played the latest uh, like Smash Bros. Ultimate. And if you then try to play that with four players and items on, it's honestly way too much. It's just, I, I caught myself and my friends just so often to say, what, 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 what? I don't, ah! Because it was just too much shit going on. And I definitely did not want to have that be a point of criticism that people would catch on to because that could be very devastating for the game. Like if people said, oh, it's, it's cool and flashy, but it gets in the way of the game, so it's it's a bad rhythm game, yo. 
You know, I've actually given this a name, what you're describing. Uh, things going on around the screen that have no actual gameplay function at all. In fact, anything, they actually undermine its experience. But not for the, only for the player, but for the audience, it's actually quite entertaining and, what, and interesting to watch. But what possible use is that? And I call it the Guitar Hero Syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I actually, my designer mind actually would assume that it's motivated by marketing a lot, actually, because before people buy the game, they need to be impressed by what they're looking at in videos when they're not actually playing. Yeah. Um, and and Smash Ultimate definitely looks spectacular. I'll give them that. It does. But then, yes, you start playing it, and I can't see what's going on. And you then retort by going, have you played Power Stone? Like, oh yeah, good point. It's always been like that. Sorry, it's a bit of a personal touchstone for me. Pun intended. Yeah, though I will, of course, also double state that I mostly had that issue with when the, it was being played four players with items on. Yes. When it's one-on-one -on -one for glory, then that is perfectly fine. That's perfectly fine. But, yeah. Clang 2, then. It's been developed by, by uh, Tinimations. It's a great name. What what is that from? Uh, so my initials is uh, T I A, and I also when I came up with the name was aspiring to be an animator, and I guess uh, it just stuck. I like it. I like it. I and, like it too. Yeah, and um, so is it published? Because I've got another name here. I've got Butterlyco Games. I think it is. Are they a published? Right, game? right. Well, how is that? Uh, they're the the publishers of the console versions. Ah, there you go. So, speaking of which, um, I uh, now I used to actually rattle off the platforms that the game's been released on, but one particular episode, no one knows it because I edited it out. I got one wrong. I actually announced a platform that hadn't yet been announced yet, and the PR got very angry. Rightly so. Oh. Yes. So. In the interest of not being caught, in, caught into trouble, got into trouble, I'm going to let you, the developer, get into trouble instead and tell me what uh, platforms is Clang 2 out on or will be out on possibly very soon. Sure. Um, so it's out now on PC on Steam, where I have self-published the game. Yes. And on November 17th, that's the day. That's the day, my boy, where... Uh, it will literally release on every relevant console out right now. It will release on Nintendo Switch, on PS4, uh, optimized for PS5, Xbox One, Xbox One X, um, Series S and X, and optimized for all of them. Fantastic. I must confess I do have all those platforms because of the job. Um, <laughs> And uh, I will likely pick it up on the PS5 because, I don't know, I just like that controller, my friend. I do! Sorry! Why am I apologising? But I do, yeah. The DualSense controller is nice. It's nice. Yeah. I've actually yet to to actually hold the PS5 controller myself, which sounds weird because I did help debug the PS5 version. <laughs> um, yeah, I... I um... I've had mine for a year. I'm one of those few people who actually got one from launch, or three people in the world. And, uh, yeah, I've been uh, really, really liking that it's, it's, this really sits well in the hand, for me, anyway. Yeah, how do you find that, uh, that 
contextual trigger thing. Mm. Depends on the game, but I think uh, driving games is annoying. I don't like it so much, especially like rally games and stuff. It's, I think it's more trouble. It's like, seriously, I just want to, you know, I get it. It's hard to get around this corner, but I just need to hit. It, it doesn't work this way in real cars. Stop it. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and when you hit the, you know, the accelerator pedal, you just go, you know, doesn't stop it. Silly. Uh, but other than that, I do. Yeah, it, it's it depends on the game. I'm playing Deathloop, and that's really good with it. Really good. Mm, yeah, that. Uh, yeah, that was actually one of the games I wanted to try out, but I never got around to because of the uh, because of the timing. Yeah, yeah. Well, hey, you got a little bit of time now, although probably not because you're debugging and fixing things, and now it's gone out in the wild. As is the thing. Hopefully, not too much, but it's bound to be some things that crop up. That you weren't expecting. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll still be in. Um, I, I guess um, what's the word? Prepared, prepared mode for something. Though thankfully, I evaded a major shitstorm on launch, which I did not on Clang One. Ah, right. Well, you learned from your previous endeavors. So yes, I definitely try to just have it be as one as humanly possible on launch, <laughs> and uh, so far, I've n- nothing that's compelled me to make a patch has come up thankfully thankfully fantastic well tom it's been fantastic having you on the show likewise thank you i uh tom and i met at pax east 2020 um which is a thousand years ago now at the time of recording this show I know PAX East 2022 is going to happen, uh, provided that travel starts to open up a little bit. I'll be making my way there again. It would be lovely because I have missed it. But um, yeah, I've kind of kind of missed it too. Yeah, but uh, anyway, you're more than welcome to come back, sir, to talk about whatever next you're currently cooking up. Don't know what that would be. Thank uh, you. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. And uh, but uh, until then. Thank you very much. Thank you again. <laughs> you have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended, and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube, and at our website, caneandrinse.com.
Let's go now. 